we're going to finish up today in your uh, on the how to study the Bible, uh, hermeneutics, how to interpret Scripture. Uh, again, we used what we headed out to you last week or last time we were together is what we're using today. Again, um, if you don't have one, I apologize because I didn't make any more. Um, you might want to look on with somebody, scoot close to somebody, and then I can make sure you get emailed the documents that you need. And just a reminder, too, what I handed to you, that, that um, packet, is a part of actually a whole book that we can make available for you. In fact, um, if you're going to, um, if you have an interest in wanting to be a part of H3 next, um, actually in, in June it's going to start, we want you to be able to take one of these and, and basically work through it. Um, on your own before you get there because it will help you <coughs> not be as far behind the eight ball when H3 begins because this deals with a lot of grammar stuff um, that you'll be doing every week in H3. The guys in that right now are um, uh, the year ends with the guys doing a 20 minute message. Um, some of you know that probably with the guys that you're friends with and um they have gone through this kind of a thing far more uh, intensely over the course of a year, as well as going along with just the, the systematic theology stuff they're doing. And uh, it's really exciting to watch them and listen to them do their messages now. And we'll talk a little bit more about that um, towards the end. I have a quote for you somewhere. What do I do with this? Let me get one. All right. And this is not this is not a quote that is really going to warm your heart this morning, but um, it's an important uh, concept that I want you to chew on. We're going to stretch you a little bit this morning in regards to um, how to interpret scripture, and we're just scratching the surface, guys. I mean, uh, we're going to walk through twelve principles of interpretation, but we. Uh, Boy, there's, you, there's so many, much more, and there's so much more that could be said about each one of these things. We're just scratching the surface, just exposing you to it. But I want to read uh, to you this quote from House, Paul House has a, a book called Old Testament Theology. He says, uh, the, the Old Testament theology has a close relationship to the New Testament. The two have discrete witnesses of their own. I'll just stop for a second. What he's saying is there's... Um, a, a big um, movement to develop <coughs> the theology of the Old Testament. What, is the, what does the Old Testament say about who God is? And that's a very good thing to do. And then there are guys writing New Testament theologies. What does the New Testament just say about God? Um, what would be a danger in sectioning off those two things? Just as you think about it off the top of your head now, what would be the danger of having... So focusing so much on the Old Testament theology and then so much on just New Testament theology. What would be a danger? Okay. The Old Testament is like wrath. I've heard people say that's wrath of God. This is a lot of New okay. Testament. So you could really get off on, on that kind of thing. What else? Well, I mean, like, if it's progressive and you're only doing Old Testament, you're not getting a core revelation of Christ. And if you can't study the New Testament without the Old Testament, I mean, like, I don't know how you could read Romans or Hebrews without knowing like the picture. Right. So what 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 it potentially could undermine is that it's actually um, how many Bibles do we have? We have one. 
But we, so we don't want to develop two theologies that make it sound like there are two different books. But that to say, it's not wrong. In fact, it can even be really helpful to develop what the Old Testament says concerning God, as long as what, in the end, you put it all together, and that's what he's basically going to say here. There's two discrete witnesses of their own. Therefore, Old Testament theology must state the Old Testament's unique message before incorporating the New Testament perspective. Now, what he's saying is, there's another danger. You can be so, there's just one Bible that you don't let the Old Testament say what the Old Testament says. And you don't let the New Testament say what the New Testament says. Okay? It's a tension you must constantly be pulled between. That there's one book, but there are two Testaments, and we need to understand what each of them says. Each of them needs to be able to speak uniquely with its voice God gave it. Here he says, The ultimate goal is still to produce biblical theology, yet to unite the Testaments, and I love this, most, probably one of the most important phrase, at the proper moment. You're going to unite them, but not before it's time, and not postponing it so far that you never get to it. At the proper moment, you put it together. This procedure is sound on historical, canonical, and exegetical grounds, and will make scriptural unity plainer than starting from the opposite end of the canon, just the New Testament. It will also help the Old Testament's unique value for theology be clearer. So I'll let you chew on that a little bit. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about that as we go. Before we jump in any further, though, let's pray. And let's thank God for revealing himself in 66 books, in two testaments, in one Bible. Okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for communicating yourself clearly. Um, you have communicated all that we need to know about you and all that we need to know about ourselves and all that we need to know about what it means to be saved. Uh, we do not believe that you have revealed everything about yourself. Um, how could any book contain all that you are? And yet you have communicated yourself clearly in these awesome books of this Bible and letters in this Bible. And we thank you for doing that. We thank you for entering into culture, entering into history, um, for being willing to communicate yourself through language and um, for accommodating yourself so that we might understand because you use our language. Um, thank you for having such thought and concern for us. Thank you for not waiting for us to figure out what your language is and what your setting is. Because, God, we would never be interested and we would never climb to such heights, nor could we ever. Um, but you have descended, condescended to us sweetly in your Son. You spoke in the past through prophets, but these days you're speaking to us in your Son. Thank you for the clarity of your scriptures. Thank you for not hiding yourself. Thank you for being merciful to sinners like us by giving us words that communicate you. Lord, I pray this morning that we would remember what um, the disciplines are all about and build, that it's our desire to shepherd um, our hearts to these scriptures so that our hearts might meet with you, the one 
revealed in the scriptures. So God draws closer to you, even as we think about how to rightly interpret your word. I pray, Lord, that you would raise up these men to be men who handle the word of God accurately and do it well for the sake of their own souls and for the sake of the souls around them and um, for the sake of this church. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, open up your... uh, Let me tell you what we did last time together. We worked off of the presuppositions. We ran through those on page three. We then uh, went through the two wrong ways for interpreting scripture. We walked through the allegorical method, which basically says we need a key outside of the text in order to understand uh, what the text is saying. There's something not clear. Uh, We don't want to treat scripture that way as if it's has a, we don't want to go after meaning in an allegorical way. And then there's the, the way that we're probably most familiar with that we don't want to interpret Scripture by, and that is, well, what it means to me is this, and then there's no authority in the text. The only authority there is is just what I think it means. And then you come along and you say, well, I think it means this. And then we're like, well, what are we supposed to do with that when we have two opposing authorities that neither one of us can ultimately appeal to? Uh, the text loses its authority. It loses its place of priority when we think that way. Uh, it doesn't matter what it means to me. It matters what it means to the original author. And then from there we apply. Uh, we have to start there. We'll walk through that. The right way then is to interpret carefully and normally. And we're going to talk more about that today. Uh, the ways in which you can interpret scripture careful, carefully and normally um, are listed in these 12 different um, that we're going to look at today. Okay, so let's just dive in and take a peek at these. Number one, the first principle of interpretation we want to take a look at is the clarity of Scripture. You just need to remind yourself that Scripture has clarity. The Bible can be understood because God meant it to be understood. It's not some esoteric thing, revelation, that is all full of spooky, hidden meanings that you can't find. Isaiah 45, 18 and 19, I am the Lord and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, proclaim things that are upright. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Why did God reveal? So that we might observe, obey, do what he revealed, um, Moses would say. Not everything in the Bible is easy to understand, though. Just because Scripture has clarity, it doesn't mean that it's easy to understand. It doesn't mean that it doesn't take work. You've got to work. Uh, Peter said that about Paul's writings, right, in Second Peter 3, 15 and 16. You know, Paul writes, and some things are hard to understand. Um, no doubt about it. However, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 indicates... God revealed his word to be understood and lived. The revealed things, the words of the law, are ours. That means we study, listen guys, this is so important. We study God's word expecting to discover a coherent message. When I read my little kids' little notes and stories they would write when they were three or four, and you couldn't even make up what a word was. You might pick out mom, you might pick out dad. I did not read it expecting to find a coherent message because the author didn't have a coherent thought in his or her head at that time about it. 
This is different. God is a coherent God. He wants to reveal himself clearly, and he did. And when we go to his words, we expect to find a coherent message. When we do come across theologically obscure passages, because we do come across those, 1 Corinthians 15, what on earth is Paul talking about when he's talking about baptism of the dead? When we come across passages like that, what do you do? Well, you give precedence to the clear sections of Scripture that address that issue. You don't build a theology off of an obscure passage. You build theology off of the clearer passages and let them speak first and most. And so you understand and you read through what the Scriptures say about baptism and about resurrection, about death, and then you set that obscure, more obscure passage in the context of those other ones. Okay? Um, listen, all of us, and we live in a day where um, the new hermeneutic, the new way of understanding, and the new way of looking at words and everything says, um, well, you can't really tell what any author meant. Well, that's really funny. Because if you take any person who's hanging on a ledge about to fall and they say, help me, they want you to be, they, they want you to understand them. <laughs> Everybody wants to be understood when they speak. Even today in this nebulous age. And so if you come across somebody who says, yeah, well, we, we can't really tell what was meant there. Um, all you have to do is think of an illustration of which they are speaking to you and which they want to be understood and say, well, you know what? You want to be understood. I would just like to extend the same courtesy to Paul. Or Moses or whoever. Okay, Scripture's clear. Number two, the accommodation of revelation. What we mean is God accommodates what he's revealing. <clears throat> God revealed his truth in terms that human beings can understand. For example, the scripture was written in well-known human languages like Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. When it speaks of infinite or divine concepts, it does so in terms that we can relate to. It's very important. For example, 2 Chronicles 16.9 says God's eyes move throughout the earth. That doesn't necessarily mean that God the Father of Spirit has physical eyes. He doesn't. But God knew that eyesight is the most perceptive of the human senses. Therefore, he described his infinite perceiving abilities that way. Accommodation means God stoops to our level, describing himself in ways we can understand. See, that's carefully interpreting and normally interpreting. Um, that's, that's why the word normal is it was helpful there. Um, we don't want to attribute such a wooden literalism um, to statements like that. Number three, this is very important. One meaning of a text. Listen, it's all important. I'm going to say it probably ten times this morning. This is the most important thing that can be said, and that's really bad to do, but there's a lot of important things here. Although a text may have different applications, it has only one meaning, and it's the meaning of the original human author moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay? There's only one meaning. Um, consider, for example, the command, do not steal. For the ten-year-old, that might apply to shoplifting a candy bar. For an adult, it might apply to doing non-work-related activities while his employer is paying him to work. Those are two different applications from the one statement. However, there's only one meaning to that text. 
Don't take something that is not yours or not yours to use in that way. Okay? That's very important. The harmony of scripture, number four. And again, if you need to ask questions or want to make a comment, and by the way, <clears throat> that is stated very shortly, very um, simply, and it is very complex on certain issues, especially when it comes to Old Testament uh, predictions, prophecies, promises, and just exactly how they are fulfilled. Um, is there, and some people think there are two meanings or two fulfillments with one passage, and it's very complex. It's not, it's stated simply here that you want to live by this, but you understand that when you're going to get to some passage, it's going to be, it's really going to stretch you, okay? Um, very challenging. Number four, the harmony of scripture. Even though written over a period of 1,500 years by more than 30 human authors, the Bible agrees with itself amazingly so, or not so amazingly so when you consider it's one divine author, God. Because the scripture was spoken by the God who knows everything and never lies, the Bible does not contradict itself. Um, you just need to grab onto that and hang on to that. God is not going to contradict himself. That does not mean that there are not some passages where it sounds like God is saying one thing and then another, and how on earth can these two things exist? There's a danger lurking in this principle. We must avoid the practice of determining what we believe based on one text and then forcing every other passage to harmonize with that view. That leads to bad, even dishonest theology. Now, that phrase there, then forcing every other passage to harmonize with that view. Usually, most of those kinds of passages exist because of our small thinking that says, well, if God said it this way, in my small mind, there's no way that he can be something else opposed to that at the same time. Or at least it appears to be opposing to that. In our minds, what we're doing is we're trying to conform a very big God to our small way of thinking. <coughs> For instance, have you ever, at the same time, hated and loved somebody with perfect hatred and perfect love? I don't know how that happens for a human being. I don't. I've hated people, not with a righteous hatred, and I've loved people. Maybe not with a completely righteous love. Obviously not with a righteous, completely love. But God is able to do both. Does God... Let me ask you this. Does God hate sinners? Or are we to grab on to the, the, the strong evangelical statement that's been made, God doesn't hate the sinner, he hates the sin. Go to Hebrews, I'm sorry, Psalm 5, 5. I want to I wanna just stress this a little bit for our sakes. <clears throat> Psalm 5, 5. Now we'll back up to verse 4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. Okay, verse 5 then would be some type of a, of a, a therefore an application of that. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. How could that happen? If God is like he is, you hate all who do iniquity. Does that say God hates the sin, but not the sinner? 
What does it say? He hates all who do iniquity. What it says. Okay? Psalm 11.5. We'll back up to verse 4 again. <clears throat> the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. Wow. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. God's very being, his core center of his soul, hates the one who loves violence. But what do you do with John 3.16? God so loved the world full of sinners that he gave his only begotten son. See, now, if I take my small little mind and I say and I love so much that God loves the world I can easily come up with a thought that says therefore God can't hate sinners he loves sinners but just because I believe scripture says he loves sinners doesn't mean that I now have to reinterpret these passages so that they fit with John 3.16 do you understand? And therefore, it's not really that God hates the sinner. We, he, he hates the sin, not the sinner's sin, but that's not what these statements say. So in other words, what's, is there a problem with God's word? Or is there a problem with my small little way of being able to think of this very big subject? You let God say what God says. And somehow for God, it is true that he hates the sinner and he loves the sinner. And you know what? You know what the great thing is on most of these kinds of things? You find, God is so awesome this way. The way that you can really solve a bunch of these things like this is with the cross. God's hatred for sin and of sinners in a righteous judgment kind of way and his love for them somehow at the cross, what? Inseparable. Where do you see God's hatred of sin and judgment for sinners. The cross. And at the same time, his what? Love for them. Wow. Someone said this God knew what he was doing with his son's cross. I mean, how that just pulls together. Um, if God is good, how can evil be attributed to him? Evil things that happen. You know... Does God just permit evil to happen? It's like, well, I didn't really have my hands on that. I'm the God of the universe, but I didn't have my hands on that evil. See, what we're trying to do is we're trying to reconcile that God only is good and can do good things according to what I say is good. And then when something evil happens, God was hands off. The problem is you're going to come across many scriptures that say, I do calamity. Okay. Um, So, again... Let's think about the cross. Does the cross help us on this? What was the most evil act in all of his human history? The crucifixion. Who did that? Who did that? Man. Wait a minute. But the Bible also says man did it. But it also says what what they did, what God had always planned to have done. So how can God be good? And yet have something evil happen? Well, I can explain it at the cross. 
the most evil thing that human beings could have ever done was crucify the Son of God. In fact, Paul says if they understood what they were doing, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. And yet God used that very thing, their wickedness, to put those two things together. So hold on to the two things. Do not try to change the one because you're so convinced of the other. They somehow have to exist in tension. Okay? Todd. Yeah, and I would say the difference, do you understand this question? Like, for instance, you, I don't think you would do that same thing with 1 Corinthians 15 and baptism for the dead. Because that is so obscure. That has an obscurity to it that the other ones don't have. It's when you have well-articulated doctrines that seem to stand opposed to one another. Um, and you have to be able to reconcile those things that way. Okay? So, harmony of Scripture. There's one message... It may stretch your mind on some things, and you may need to let some things stand that seem opposed to you, but that doesn't mean that Scripture has two meanings or God has two sides that are different, that you that are opposed to himself, that he's in contradiction with himself. No, he's one God, and he communicated himself clearly to be seen. Number five, what do we mean by normal interpretation? This means we read the Bible following the reading practices we would consider normal for any other important document. When the office manager sends the maintenance man a memo instructing him to change the flickering fluorescent globe in the hallway, the maintenance man doesn't read a mystical secret meaning about spiritual light into it. He reads the memo normally, and he fetches a new globe and a stepladder. That's normal interpretation, and we need to read our Bibles that way too. Normal reading means statements are assumed to be literal unless it is evident the author was using a figure of speech, and that's very important, the author nobody else's opinion matters like his matters. The author's opinion matters more than anybody else's. For example, when Jesus said, I am the door, we do not conclude that Jesus is made of wood and has hinges. We naturally understand that our Lord was using imagery. Our minds examine the literal meaning, find it unlikely, and accept it as a figure of speech. Now there's an important qualification on this, or a, 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 a not a qualification, but a, an additional point to make. We should note that even when interpreting figures of speech like that, it is good policy to begin with the literal. What is a door? And ask questions about that. What purpose does a door serve? Having asked that, then we ask, what was Jesus trying to communicate by comparing himself to a door? The literal function of a door suggests that meaning of the figure. Jesus is the gateway to eternal life. Okay, that's another way of describing what we mean by normal interpretation. Number six. Context. One of the most important summary statements ever made regarding biblical interpretation is this. Context determines meaning. <clears throat> Context determines meaning. That means that a scripture, that a text of scripture is given its true meaning only when it is considered in relationship to the words around it. Now I want to take credit fully for my friend using this next example because we used to kid each other all the time in college about this, that my life verse was Philippians 2, 3a. Do nothing. I love that verse. Do nothing. So he used this, it's so funny. 
Is that justification for laziness? No. The rest of the verse says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Now, that's a ridiculous example, right? Of course you have to read more. You have to read the context to understand what that meant. Um, when the words surrounding do nothing are considered, it is clear Paul was not condoning laziness. Here's another example in the same book. Be anxious for nothing. Right? By quoting only a portion of a text, we can completely upend the obvious meaning of the text. Not considering the context would have led us to disobey God if we had applied our interpretation. Now, that's a, those are two ridiculous examples that very easily, all you have to do is stretch it a little bit to include more words and in, in passages, and because, and we can just do the very same thing with sentences. Taking one sentence but not reading the sentence before it or after it. Um, another example, Isaiah 110. <coughs> in fact, I want you to turn to Isaiah 110. We'll just look at it briefly so that you can see what his um, example is that he's using. <coughs> Isaiah 110. <coughs> Here's what Isaiah 1.10 says. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, if we look at only at that, we're going to come down to one conclusion, that Sodom was a, a literal place, Gomorrah was a literal place. Um, the, Isaiah must be talking about those places. I mean, there's nothing in that verse that would make us think beyond a real place Sodom at one point in history and a real place Gomorrah, which is now under ash heap someplace. But... <coughs> Um, now, what he says, he asks, to whom was God speaking? Based on that verse alone, you would conclude God was addressing Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, read the context. Verse 1 says Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who lived 1,400 years after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 3 says Isaiah was proclaiming God's word to Israel. Verse 8 uses the terminology, daughter of Zion an Old Testament phrase referring to Jerusalem. And finally, verse 9 uses the phrases like Sodom and like Gomorrah. Isaiah was making a comparison between Jerusalem of his day and Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities destroyed over a thousand years before. <coughs> Context is important. If you had picked out only verse 10, you would have concluded Isaiah chapter 1 is about Sodom and Gomorrah, and your interpretation would have been embarrassingly inaccurate. Reading the context gives you the true picture. Picture, Context determines meaning. Um, here are some questions you can ask to grasp the context of a particular passage. Ask the question, who is writing? And to whom is he writing or speaking? And is there a specific situation addressed in the text that shapes the interpretation? Um, he uses, has another great example here using Jeremiah 29.11. He has it there for you and. Uh, this becomes a life verse for many Christians. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. See, <coughs> God can't do anything calamitous. This verse is often quoted as if it were a general promise to all believers. The first thing I think of when I think of that, I have a plan for you not for calamity. I think about poor Jesus, the Son of God. <coughs> poor Paul, who lost his head. Poor Peter, who was crucified upside down and how many other countless ones. This verse is often quoted as if it were a general promise to all believers. However, even a cursory examination of Jeremiah 29 shows that this was part of a letter sent by Jeremiah to the Jews who were exiled in Babylon. 
Reading further, you find that this promise was part of God's plan to restore the nation of Israel in the future. The ones to whom Jeremiah was writing and the specific situation, exile and promised restoration, limits the meaning of this verse. It is definitely not a sweeping promise that believers will have an easy and calamity-free passage through life. In fact, it wasn't even true for Jeremiah, in a sense, because he was hated, harried, whatever that means in South Africanese. Um, What does it mean? Harassed? Thrown in prison, kidnapped, and martyred for his faithful preaching. It certainly didn't apply to him. Context determines meaning. Um, so, let me let me give you a, an example. These are all examples you might go, well, yeah, but I, you know, those are kind of extreme examples or simple examples. Let me give you an example of what is happening. Um, it, it happens almost every Tuesday morning in H3. Smed tells me as the guys are doing their messages. The preaching in Romans 8, and they come across, or some other passage, they come across uh, what they want to explain next, the next phrase, and they say, now let me explain to you what this phrase means. Turn to 2 Timothy. And everybody starts turning to 2 Timothy to explain what Romans 8 says. Now, what is good about that is the same author wrote both letters, and you might gain some insight, and we'll talk about this in a minute, as to how he uses the word. What's not good about that is you quickly are leaving the context of Romans 8 to try to find out its meaning in another letter someplace else. And what you want to do is you want to, when you're studying a passage or you're reading it to get everything you can out of it, you want to put a seatbelt on in that passage and fasten it really tight so that it, you're like, oh, I, I have to stay here. And you stay there. And you stay there. And you stay there a little longer. And you don't get up and leave that passage. You stay in that passage. You stay in that passage. You develop that passage. You, you stay in that passage until you think there's nothing else I can possibly see. And then you stay a little bit longer and you'll see, you'll see something more. And then later at some point, you'll let go of the seatbelt and move around a little bit. Okay? Context determines the meaning. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, number seven. Progressive revelation. I mentioned this briefly in the sermon on Sunday. (coughs) God revealed his truth over an extended period of time. In other words, revelation became more detailed as time went on. It progressed. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. The fact that God's revelation has grown more detailed over time means we must avoid the trap of reading later revelation back into earlier revelation. For example, in Genesis 12:3, God said that he would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. In Galatians 3, and in particular verses 6 to 9, God revealed that part of that blessing blessing is salvation by grace through faith in Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. It might be a mistake to assume that Abraham understood all of that when God gave him the promise in Genesis 12. Do you understand? Only as Revelation progressed did God unveil the specifics of his plans. Listen, just think about your own personal history and how you view 
your own personal history. Um, for me, you, you don't read later events of your history, your own personal history, into prior events. I was a pagan for 19 years, and yet I can see in those 19 years many different things that God did through events and people and circumstances that prepared me for Christ. But that doesn't mean that I take Christ and I push him back into my prior pagan life as if he was there as my Savior the whole time. He wasn't. We understand. That's foolish. None of us do that with our personal histories. I had nine years of marriage with Kim without children. We now have nine, almost ten years of marriage um, with, with children. And I can see during that time prior how he used childless living in such a way that prepared us for children. But that doesn't mean I look back and I say, well, actually, we had children for nine, the first nine years. I don't import all of that and push it back in. It was very important what happened without children. It served the purpose. Okay? We have to do the same type of thing with Scripture. You let what is said in the earlier parts of Scripture be said. And what was said there gave hints and shadows of ideas that were to come, greater ideas, and Scripture unfolded and greater ideas came. But that does not mean that you push everything back that you know in the later parts of Revelation back into prior passages. Um, Nobody reads personal history that way, but a lot of Christians read their Bibles that way. And you have to be so careful. Now the danger is you stay in the earlier sections and you never get to the end. You have to get to the end. In fact, turn the page. He has more to say. When studying Old Testament passages, we must take care not to read into them more than the author could have known. Once we have established the author's meaning in his historical context, it is appropriate to fill that out with later revelation. However, these two steps must be kept separate for a time, and then you unite. Guys, it would be wrong if you decided you were going to do a series of... Uh, you were going to do a, a, a Bible study out of Jeremiah 1, the calling of Jeremiah, and it took you five weeks to do it, and you were going to go through it. It would be wrong for you to preach Jeremiah and, and in your study and in your um, explanation, in your teaching, in your preaching, or whatever it was you did. It would be wrong for you to not mention Jesus Christ. Why? Not because Jesus Christ is in Jeremiah 1 but because you understand there's more revelation. And so you develop what is there in Jeremiah 1, and you eventually, at some point, must say something about Christ if you're speaking with people who are Christians in particular and who need to get saved by Christ. You must bring that in, but not because he's completely there in Jeremiah 1 like he is in the New Testament. He's not. So, separate things. Develop what the author meant but remember, there's one more revelation, and I need to get to it, okay? And then move in a responsible way to the later revelation, okay? Number eight, interpretation versus application. There <coughs> is a difference, okay? This is so important. Um, we may be touching on some things that, that you, you might not have thought of before, but this is so important for you to hang on to this. 
Interpretation is not the same as application. And application is not the same as interpretation. Interpretation finds the meaning the original author intended in his historical situation. The application is the various ways that one meaning can be lived out today. Um, for example, Jesus said, love one another. A wife might say, now watch carefully the words. In fact, I'd even circle them if you got something to write with. A wife might say, that means I need to love my husband better. Okay? However, is that really the meaning? Circle that word. If it is, her husband is going to have some trouble fulfilling that command. He doesn't have a husband. Do you understand? You see how sloppy she is with the word meaning? What is she what is she what should she say instead? A way that I can apply this, possibly, and we'll talk about how wise that is to apply this passage, um, is by loving my husband. If that is the meaning, the wife might also get upset when other women in the church try to love her husband better. Um, you can see the point. The meaning of John 15:12 is a command for the disciples to exhibit a self-sacrificial concern for others. And he says, you might be able to stretch that to apply to how a wife is to relate to her husband. However, that application is definitely not the meaning of the passage. Do you see how it's important to understand those two words and how they're separate? And what it does if all of a sudden you confuse the two to be the same? And now all of a sudden you're having John 15, 12 say something about husband-wife relationship that that's not what Jesus was saying. Interpretation and application must always be kept separate. And here's one way to do that. Let's assume you are studying Romans 12, 1 and 2. Rewrite in your own words those two verses. Start every sentence with the words, Paul said, Paul said, um, Paul said, uh, how, does, how does Romans 12 want to start off? Therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Paul says to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Paul says it must be that your acceptable service of worship to provide. Paul said, do not be conformed to this world. Paul said, you just keep saying that over and over. That helps you stay where Paul is. What he actually said to the Romans. That is the interpretation. That's the meaning. And then from that interpretation, you can develop appropriate applications for your present situation. Example from do not be conformed to this world. Again, watch these words. Wrong approach. What that means to me is that we shouldn't watch television. What Romans 12.2 means is you shouldn't watch TV. In fact, this verse means all television is evil. If you're on a television, you're not a Christian. That's what Paul said to the Romans. You know. Again, extreme example, but... The right approach is to think about interpretation. Paul said the Roman believers should not follow the same patterns of thinking and living unbelievers do. Application, separate from that. Something that influences me to think like an unbeliever is watching TV. To keep from being conformed to worldly thinking, I should be more discerning about what I watch on TV or even avoid watching TV altogether. That's the application. That's different than the meaning. Does this make sense? Okay. Interpretation. What Paul said is distinct from how you are to act based on what he said. One interpretation can lead to many legitimate applications. One interpretation can lead to many legitimate applications. Just make sure you're actually finding the one meaning of the text before 
you start applying. Okay? Grammar and syntax, number nine. When you're interpreting, it's very important to pay attention to grammar and syntax. A verse does not say more or less than what the rules of language make it say. It might be qualified by the context, but the real meaning of the text is found in what the passage says according to the normal use of language. Now, the reason he's so brief on this is because pages 15 through the end is all grammar and syntax and how to apply that to um, studying scripture. Okay, so he doesn't say much here. If you get the, the, the packet, you'll get so much on grammar and syntax, okay? How about number 10? Historical appropriateness. One of the great dangers a Bible student faces is reading a modern view of a word or concept into a biblical one. For example, one well-known Christian psychologist defines one of Paul's words for the mind in Romans in terms of the Freudian unconscious mind, ego, ego. Uh, That's not the word for mind. What's the one he was thinking of? That's the word for I. I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know what you have. I guess it would be news, but I know what he's thinking. However, the unconscious mind, the id, superego, and so on, are the manufacture of modern psychology. It is historically inappropriate to read those modern secular concepts back into Paul's statements. This is called totality transfer, totally transferring a 21st century meaning into a first century word. Freudian concept of human beings simply didn't exist in Paul's day. Always make sure your interpretation is appropriate to the historical situation of the context. Okay? That's very, very important. And word study is is similar to that. I got an example for you I heard the other day. Let me give you a, a modern example. I want you to turn to Luke 10. I was driving home one day and one of the talk show guys that I listen to in the afternoons if I'm in the car on the way home was interviewing Rick Warren. Um, You know, the purpose-driven life guy in Saddleback Community Church in Southern California. He evidently has come up with, um, he's really big on on short-term missions, making sure people do them, but then do them rightly. And so I think he's got either, I don't know if it's a book or if it's basically a a curriculum that's for short-term missions that he gives to people. And is it a book? Both. Oh, it's both of those things? Okay. So, anyway, he, he was offering teaching on how to do short-term missions. And, and um, he got to Luke 10, verse 4, and it says, carry no money belt. And what he said is that, uh, what that means is, on, in short-term missions, we're not supposed to give money to the people we're going to. Because modern missions and modern day short term missions has really ruined people when Western missionaries come to their place and they try to fix everything by giving them money or building them a building or whatever, just giving lots of money. And that's true. That's a very accurate observation. However, (coughs) what did he do with that? He took that current modern day truth and he did what with it? He pushed it back and he made it all fit into Jesus' command here to carry no money belt. And he says that's what it means. Is that what Jesus said it meant? I mean, is that what what Jesus was after? He's saying, guys, look, you're going to, as you go throughout Galilee, you're going to ruin people if you give them money. So don't carry a money belt. 
Now, Jesus was trying to do something here far different than what Rick Warren says the passage means. And that is, he was trying to create dependence in his disciples. You can do nothing in this mission apart from me. Don't rely on your own stuff, and I'm going to give you a tangible example. You're going to have nothing. You're just going to go, but you're going to find that God provides for you as you go. Okay? So, we do this all the time. We get these ideas of what we've experienced or what we've seen happen in Christendom, and we read a passage, and it makes us think of that, and therefore we quickly, without a lot of careful thought, attribute that experience or that um, whatever it is we went through into that passage, and you can't do that. You have to be very careful. There might be times when you're right, but you should never just totally transfer that. <laughs> Does that make sense? All right, word study. We're making good time. This is good. To understand a passage of scripture, key words within that passage must be defined accurately as illustrated above. To do this, it is helpful to consider the other uses of that word in the scripture. First, by the same author, and then by others. Now, let's stop for just a minute here. This does not contradict the other part of staying in your context. Okay? Remember when I said, like, if you're preaching or teaching from a passage, you say, well, let me tell you what this means. Turn to 2 Timothy. Okay? I spoke very strongly and said, don't do that. There does come a time in your study where you do need to perhaps look at other passages and see how a word is used, right? Do you understand? And when you do that, when you get to that, you go first to the same author if you can. If you're studying Paul and you want to look at his word justification or his word righteousness, you probably don't want to go to James and try to define. You're going to find yourself in a tizzy. Okay? Stay in Paul and understand how he... Go to another passage in which he uses the same word. And get a feel for how that author uses that word. And then you can go beyond that um, once you understand. Now, this is very important. Very important sentence. If there are multiple meanings for one word, and there are, okay? There are multiple meanings. It happens in our language all the time, right? Um, If there are multiple meanings the immediate context determines which meaning the author intended in your passage. Right? It's your immediate context that determines the meaning. If you're working in the New Testament, the Old Testament background of the word must always be considered. Okay? You can accomplish much in word study with just an exhaustive English concordance and some persistence. As you look at every use of a word, you'll naturally see its range of meanings its nuances in different contexts. However, today there are also many excellent usable lexicons. Um, that's not a little green creature from someplace else. It's a lexicon. Okay? A word dictionary, theological workbooks, and commentaries that provide scholarly explanations of biblical words for the average uh, Bible student. Get them and use them. I want to give you guys something. I want to let you see something here. Um, Take one of these and pass them. You need both of these handouts, okay? So pass them about. I want to show you, and I, I give, this is uh, my, my friend who wrote this stuff that we're going through. Um, he, this is the way he was. Uh, when Kim and I got married, his wedding gift 
to us was the New American Standard Concordance. My wife was thrilled. I was thrilled. She was like, why would anybody give a couple that? Well, that's just the way Joel thought. And um, it, was, it was great. And one of the reasons he did that is because we always talked about what he just said. If you guys, listen to me, if you don't know Greek and you don't know Hebrew, if you have a good collegiate dictionary that has not dropped words that we used to use, like sin, okay, because you got to get a, a good dictionary, and if you can get an older one, or if you can go online and use an old-style dictionary, and you have this right here, a concordance, ESV, NIV, NAS, whatever. If you have those two things, you can do so much and you can do it well because you can keep yourself from going, uh, the word repent. Oh, and I look in Webster's, the seventh definition, that's the one I like the best. So I'm going to use that one and import that one into every time it's used in Scripture. Bad idea. Okay? You have, you have to have some restraints on you on how you use the word. Okay? Does everybody have one yet uh, of all the stuff? Now, what I did is I took... Um, I want to talk about the word repent for a minute. Take the page that looks like this. It doesn't have any of the Greek on it. Um, but the columns. I want you to take the columns. Okay? And over on the right-hand side, go down to the word repent. Do you see it there? It's the second to the last main heading on that page, on page 911. Repent. And what you find is in the New American Standard... This is all of the times that that word repent has been used to translate various old uh, Hebrew words uh, and or Greek words. Okay. Now what I want to focus on particularly is, is Luke 17 verse 4. Just listen to it. Let's say you're studying Luke 17 verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And you're like, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. How can you repent seven times in a day of something and have it be genuine repentance? First question I have is, how many times do you sin against God every day and genuinely um, really want to repent? I hope more than seven times, guys. It's possible. Okay. So you're like, I, gotta, I, I get it. It must be in that word repent. It must be, there must be shades of meaning on that that help me. And so I'm going to study that word. So you go, first thing. How many of you guys have a, a concordance like this? Okay. Here's what I want you to, This is so helpful. It was for me. So you go to Luke 17.4. And you go off to the right. Do you see the italicized word there? 30, or number there, 3340? Now, do you notice that actually in the New Testament, up to Matthew 3.2... And you go all the way down to Revelation 16.11, there's only one word. That says it's the same word, repent. It's 33.40. Now, go above 33.40, and do you see the other numbers above it in the Old Testament? You see how they're not italicized? That's just a way for you to see that, oh, the non-italicized numbers are Hebrew words, or Aramaic in some portions of the Old Testament, and the italicized words are Greek. So it's New Testament. Okay? So... What you're seeing in that whole column um, from Numbers 23:19 down to Revelation 16:11 is the the Hebrew and the Greek words that the NAS translated as repent. 
All right. Now, since we are studying Luke and his usage of it, where should we look for help in terms of understanding what Luke might mean by repent? What should we do? Yeah, we want to stay in Luke first, and we actually say, oh, great, he used the word already four other times. 13.3, 13.5, 16.30. So I'll look at that. And I actually, you look up to the side and go, yep, it's the same word, 33.40, 33.40, If they were different numbers, you would want to go, oh, I need to watch that and pay attention strictly to 33.40, okay? Then you can also, beyond that, then go to Acts because Luke also wrote Acts. You can see how he would use it in those cases. Now, um, let's go to the next page. What you then do is say, okay, now that I understand where it's been used, I've looked at those words and how uh, in, in those other verses. Then you turn to the back of the concordance where you find the italicized numbers, and that's this page then. And you just go down until you find 3340. And you see it right in the middle of the page, in the middle column, do you guys find it? 3340. And the word right after it is the Greek. Okay, and you're like, well, great, I can't read Greek. Well, again, just go one more step. And they transliterated it for you. Metanoeo. Uh, okay? And it tells you it's actually from 3326, another word, and 3359, which is meta, which is a preposition, and um, noeo, mine. Okay? And it means to change one's mind or purpose. Now, look at, see where it says, uh, then it has a dash, and it has the word repent, and then a parenthesis of 26. That means in the NAS, it has been translated as repent how many times? If you go back to your page and you count 3340s down, guess how many you're going to get? 26. But it's also been uh, translated repented, past tense, five times. And if you were to turn the page to 912, you would find the word repented, and you would see it there five times. It's also been translated repents three times. And so now you, what you're doing is you've just found parameters. Okay, I know where I can... This is what the word means according to the, the way that these scholars have at least tried to determine what metanoeo means. And then you can go to a good dictionary and look for the way that it's defined that's similar here. that doesn't veer off far from this. Okay? And by doing that, you have just restrained yourself and deepened your study all in one. So guys, I mean, you don't need to be this massive Greek scholar to be able to do this kind of stuff. You just have to have a good book or two and um, the ability to keep your backside in the chair. Okay? And there you have it. I just wanted to give you an example of what you can do for word study. Okay. Those books are really inexpensive also. Yeah. I mean, you can get that in the quality of your study for like $20. Yeah. So and also, I know that some of them are, at least for right now, ESV is online. Online, yeah. But I don't know if it's always going to be online. Do you know? So, I, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, yes, you can do like Strong's for free at letterbible.org. So. Yeah. Some of the stuff is online and you can have access to it. Okay. One more. Let's do the checking principle and then we'll just kind of talk in general. It's good for a student to check his understanding of a passage against the interpretations of Bible scholars from a, uh, the ages of Christianity. It's impossible for us to know all the geographic, historical, interpretational issues in a passage. Information Bible scholars spend a lifetime accumulating. 
One of the greatest examples I've ever heard, I think I shared it with you a little bit last time, was um, that Don Carson uses to explain is the church in Laodicea in Revelation 2 or 3. Um, I, I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'll just spit you out of my mouth. Well, what they've unearthed in Laodicea is, archaeologists have, is that there was a, a water source there and their water source that they piped in was it was awful water. It was terrible. It made people sick. It was it was just always warmish. It wasn't hot. It wasn't like a hot spring, and it wasn't cold and refreshing. But the other cities around it um, had one city had uh, cold, fresh water that was very useful. And another city had the hot springs that all the people went to to because they, they felt it was you know therapeutic. It was it helped them, and that hot water was useful. Well, we have an idea from our own mind of what we think that means without knowing those things. God actually wants you to either be fully on fire for him or he would prefer that you just actually hated him. That's what he would rather you be. If you're somewhere in the middle middle kind of blase about God, well, that really makes God angry. Really? So that's a... a, a, he, He wants that more than he wants you to be completely against him. That's not what we want to attribute to God in the way that he thinks. <coughs> but these scholars have found some of these kinds of things, and it does you so much good to know that. How, are, how am I going to know that apart from reading some of these things? How are you going to know? And so then at some point, you do want to get um, some tools that are going to help you know those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can start with um, basic uh, one-volume commentary on the whole Bible, if you can, like a Zondervan type thing, uh, you can get a, a, a cheap paperback set on the New Testament um, that will help you a lot. And I can show you which ones you want to do that it's affordable. It would be less than $100 to get a whole commentary set on the New Testament. Um, you know, you want to start and get some of those kinds of things because that's something you can do word study all day, guys, and you're not going to find that out. <coughs> okay, You can spend a lifetime doing word study and you're not going to find that out. But scholars who have spent their lifetime to find that one thing, put it in a book in less than a page, and if you have that book, boy, you've got a lot of help. Okay? Scott, yeah. Do you have like a list of just like the experts you would say like on each book um, that we would be able to get by chance? Well, I, I don't have a, a list, but I mean, what the way that you go for, in my opinion, on commentaries is you do not buy. Well, Mostly, you do not buy sets because the set is probably as full of guys or, or commentators that you might not like. So you you see, oh wow, John Stott's in this series. Oh, I'm going to buy that series, and then you get it, and there's 14 other people who did commentary that you don't even know, and you don't even like what they say. I have a set on my shelf that there's three good commentaries out of the whole thing on the New Testament. Was a mistake to buy that set. Um, so I buy by name. I go by names. <coughs> if John Stott has written a commentary and I can buy that one commentary, I'll buy that. Okay, if, just as an example. Um, there are some guys who have got a whole set, <coughs> you know, and you can buy that and recognize that you're going to get one guy, and, and it's good to have a variety. But you can do that later as you're, as you're doing more serious study and whatnot. But I can. If you have a book that you're particularly leaning on or, or looking for something, I can give you some names if you want. Also, Carson's published really inexpensive 
guide of New Testament commentaries. So I, I can get oh, yeah. seven dollars, and what he does is he goes through pretty much everything that's been published and uh, writes maybe three or four sentences. <coughs> and it actually makes for really fun reading because he his word use and his language about the commentaries is like it's actually like enjoyable to read what he says about these people. Yeah. He's right on by and large. What, what he's talking about is um, Carson because he's a New Testament scholar. Has like an anti-bibliography. It's like yeah. Pages. He he says, let's talk about the Gospel of Matthew, and he gives a list of commentaries, and he gives a little three or four or short paragraph review on each of those commentaries. So if you want to buy a commentary on Matthew, you take his little book, and you go to Matthew, and you read through what he says about it, and you can go. Now, of course, you have to know who Carson is. Right. You have to be, you know, do you trust him? Um, you know, with what he says, does he have the same view of scripture that you do? You want to make sure you're on the same page with the same guy as much as you can be. And then you can make a, a choice. Here's a guy who's actually read this whole commentary, and I think I can go with what he says. There's also another guy from Masters who did that, James Roscoe, Dr. Roscoe. And I, th- I think his is actually more extensive than Carson's, I think. And it's been recently updated. Um, and he writes more than three or four sentences. He, he has like sometimes a whole page, and he'll actually tell you. Um, in the Gospel of John, as he deals with chapter 8 um, on the woman caught in adultery, his view is actually this, and he has these three reasons why he holds the view. And, I mean, he just goes into that kind of detail. Um, he spent a lifetime doing that. So those are great resources to help you. Notice that this principle is where in the list? Last. There's a reason for that. As a rule, it's best to do your own study on a passage and then compare it with someone else's. Sometimes you'll need to use Bible dictionaries and commentaries early in the process to get a handle on a certain word or theological concept, and that's advisable. However, avoid the trap of opening a commentary and reading it as if it were the Bible. Okay? Work on a passage all you can, looking up specific words or concepts you don't understand, and once you've done all that you can to process a text, then use good commentaries to fill in the gaps or correct errors. Rather than read the results of someone else's analysis, analyze the passage yourself. You'll understand the message of the text and apply it better if you do. Use the checking principle. It will save your interpretation of life, but don't become so commentary dependent that you never develop your own ability to interpret the scripture. You can do more than you think you can. You can. And the 12 principles we've just uh, covered apply to the study of all of scripture. However, uh, there are some specific principles that will help you when studying like Old Testament poetry, Psalms and Proverbs, or biblical narrative, which are the story sections of scripture. Um, and the following six pages then deal with that. His, where he goes next is um, five tips for interpreting biblical narrative. You don't have this parallel structure of Hebrew poetry and things like that. And he helps you understand that. Okay? Now, do you guys have any questions about what we saw here? Um, what we went through. Zach. So, um, as regards number seven. Yes. Number seven is. Progressive Revelation. Yes. Um, we see in the Old Testament the presence of the angel of the Lord. And sometimes it's used uh, interchangeably with the Lord or stuff like that. Um, would an example of number. of importing being finding these passages of the angel of the Lord and then just saying that every one of those is an example of Jesus? Jesus prior to coming out of Mary? Yeah, but probably for different reasons, not the, not the same. Um, yeah, and that's a, that's a 
tricky thing for somebody. Those are called theophanies, um, where God, um, there appears to be a, a member of the Godhead present in angelic form or human form. Uh, the, one of the easier examples is when the three men come up to Abraham and they're on their way to um, Sodom and Gomorrah. And as you keep reading through that the chapter or two there, it becomes clear that one of them is not a man. It's actually the Lord. And some people will say that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Well, you don't want to say it that way. You want to say it's the second member of the Godhead, perhaps. Um, so I don't know if that's exactly the same, but it's, 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 it has similarities. You just need to be careful. Um, I think one thing, I think there's been books, or books written that develops that issue quite a bit. And it kind of develops that as a technical theological term. And so even if it's accurate that in looking back upon it that, okay, maybe it is the son who is pre-incarnate, does that have an effect on our interpretation? What was important for them is that it was they're in the presence of God. Right. So is it theologically significant in interpreting what the passage meant when it was written that it was the son versus the father, even though later revelation we made and developing the case we may make a determination of who it is, it may not have been necessarily vital to the actual interpretation of the passage yeah. about. That's a very good point. What's the book you're referring to? It's, uh, I can't remember. It's, uh, do you have it at home? Mm-hmm. If you remember or whatever, email me. Talk that to guys. Other questions? JG? Yeah, when do we draw the line in the straight of this or is not allegorically interpreted? Uh, can you think of an example for me? No. Okay. <laughs> 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 he wants you to guess. <laughs> okay, let me guess. Um, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to ask, like, with number five, the normal interpretation, like looking at particularly like the book of Revelation, and there seems to be like this genre in the first century of like apocalyptic literature. And as a layperson, I wasn't aware of it for a number of years that there was actually a genre of literature. So how do you how do you deal with that book in particular? I guess kind of question. I waited now because I didn't want to talk yeah. about earlier, but. I'm that's a little different than what JG's asking, and um, so let, let's separate those two things for now. Um, what you what you want to do, um, and, and this is what we've already we've said this, and so I maybe sound like a broken record. When ideas come into your mind about, oh, that's like, yeah, just just recognize that you're thinking that. It doesn't mean drop kick it and chastise yourself for thinking it, but just hold that off for a minute, and then stay in the text and think what did what did God want Noah to do? What did what was God saying to um, Samson's parents? If it, whatever passage you're dealing with, what was it that was going on at that time? Keep yourself there. Stay there a little bit longer. We always need to stay in the context longer than we think we do. Because we get excited about what we think we're seeing, we're thinking about that. And that's good. You want to be excited about it. But you hold those things off. Those things, those ideas, that, that, that imagination, that, you know, I think I have an idea of, of a way to illustrate that. Um, that must, whatever that is, it might be really good. But it has no authority over the text. 
And so what you want to do is let the context say everything that it's saying. There's times when I'm studying through Luke, and early on as I'm, <coughs> as I'm going through and I'm doing um, you know, the exegesis side where you're unpacking what it means in its original set, or as I'm reading through commentaries later, I'll get these ideas like, oh, man. And I'll write them down. And I'll, wherever I'm at, and then I'll bring it, and, I'll, and I just, but I suspend it. I just hold on to it. And you know what? Most of the time, I never end up using them. Because what I thought was really a good idea turned out to be something that was, you know, that's actually more confusing. I don't think that would be helpful. Seemed good at the time. And it's a biblical idea confirmed somewhere else in Scripture, but it's not what's really going on here. Um, and so you just want to stay in your text, stay in your text, and, and keep your idea. But, su- but suspend that a little bit and then always submit it back to the, the meaning. I don't know if, that, if that's helpful or not. Does that scratch you where you're itching on that? Yeah, I mean, I know we, illustrations are, are valuable. Yes. But you don't want to cross the line. And yeah. Like you say, have it be authoritative over what the yeah. context is meaning. Illustrations are very important. Jesus did a lot of illustrating. But if you even watch the way that Jesus illustrated, Jesus' illustrations were never so overpowering that they, they overpowered his message. And preachers today can do that, or teachers or whatever can do that today. You have an illustration that is so either emotive or whatever that it ends up being the main thing, and the text has to support the illustration. And you never want to do that. You, you, it needs to be just the opposite. Illustrations are humble ways of amplifying the text. And a good way to know that is when you're done with an illustration, does do you walk away hearing it from it or having shared it, thinking more about the text than you did about the illustration or about the God of the text? If not, and you're just like, wow, that was a really cool story he shared. You know, just, oh, man. Well, then that tells you something about what you just heard. Okay? So that's what you want to do. You want you want to walk away with the text being more impressive after an illustration than anything else. I saw another hand up. Oh wait, um, I want to get back to yours. I don't even know if I want to answer your question <laughs> <laughs> on Revelation because there's a there's two tensions. There there are there's there's tensions to hang on to when. For instance, if you're going to be in Hebrew poetry, there are some very important things as a genre that help you interpret it. However, those things are not so overpowering that your normal, careful interpretation don't make sense. It's not like it's such a key that it undoes normal, careful interpretation. You understand what I'm saying? I I want to personally believe the same thing about apocalyptic literature. There are some important things as a genre that you need to have in mind as you study it, but I think there's a lot of guys who think that is so powerful that it changes your normal careful interpretation. Now you no longer interpret normally and carefully because it's apocalyptic literature. Well, there's no other genre in which we do that. Uh, and and so yeah. So it's true. You want to be you want to be thoughtful about what kind of genre this is. And, and the hard thing for us today is we don't have a genre like that that fits in. If we have 
Hebrew, you have Hebrew poetry, and all of us, whether we read poetry or not, we were exposed to it at some point, and we understand, oh, poetry, yeah. I have some type of identification with it. But what genre today would you identify as apocalyptic that is current? Probably the closest, in all honesty, is like science fiction. Or the type of thing that's being written today like that's just so out there, imaginative. Um, and so we don't know what to do with that. We don't have a we don't have a spot to put it in. And so you just have to be careful. Um, I mean, like, I think the, the trouble I have is not like I, when I read it, like I look at the heavenly scenes, like, like the first three chapters, he's talking about churches. Use my normal hermeneutic. Um, starts off says it's a book about Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Last part it says, you know, worship worship God, not me. So those are two good lessons about Jesus. We win, worship God. Right. Uh, the heavenly scenes, like taking the face value, just in heaven. So normal, but like the earthly stuff, I'm, that's where my attention is. I'm, I, is the whole I, book apoc- apocalyptic, or I'm is not, only chapter four on apocalyptic? <laughs> and what in the text warrants you to make those decisions? Right. And that's that's what it's, that's okay. just hard. Okay. And and. Um, so I don't have an answer for you other than what I'm, what I'm saying at this point. So I, and I, I have a I have a bent on how to view apocalyptic literature, and so, do, so does everybody. Um, but I and you have just two big, very big camps that develop. I just don't want to look at parts of the Bible and go, I'm not going to understand that. So I don't have to. Yeah. You know, I want to be able to have a whole canon to my life. Yeah. So. Revelation is a, is, is a challenge on a number of fronts. And, but I think these kinds of things here you want to um, not let go of um, as much as possible and let a genre style um, supplement this, not undo these things, in my opinion. So, Other questions? Danny? Um, in letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Yeah. So where does that uh, fit into this process here? And at what point do you, uh, you know, like in my Bible, you know, it's got cross-references to other scripture. So how does that... Great question. Um, He doesn't have that as a specific. However, it it is found within number four on the harmony of scripture, um, cross-referencing where you would obviously be concerned about different ref, uh, passages and how they fit together. Um, to degree it's in um, number six context actually as a hesitation. I'll stick it in some other place too. A word study, number 11. And you know what, you could probably incorporate it into number 12 too, a checking principle within scripture. Um, you want to check as you're developing a passage that you're not developing a, a, a theology or a, an understanding or a meaning that is contradictory to what is taught elsewhere. Um, again, cross-referencing though, or scripture interpreting scripture, um, obscure passages need to be interpreted by less obscure passages, um, and you need to do that as soon as you need to do that at any point in the study. Um, but it, where where it's clear. What's being said? It's not as obscure. Obscure. Um, avoid the tendency to quickly go cross-reference. Um, there's a there's a tool called the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, uh, and it can actually be a really good tool, and it can actually also be a killer to you. It'll destroy you. MacArthur uses it all the time. 
Um, and, and he uses it to, to bring it. Pardon? He uses the new world. Yeah, and it's better. It's, uh, it's, um, and it's enormous. <laughs> yeah. And it's got all kinds of keys in it on how to use it. Is it a direct cross-reference? Is it, um, I, they have all different kinds of ways. But you want to just be careful not to use that sooner than later. Um, so cross-referencing is very important to do. You just don't want to put it too close to the front, unless you're in, a, in an obscure passage. Does it, what else are you thinking? Oh, I, just, I was just wondering, in the, uh, uh, this list of 12 principles, but on a step-by-step process, you know, if I'm instructing someone, yeah. here's how you here's how you study the Word. Yeah. You know, so yeah. um, I realize it's integrated in several of these steps. I'm just wondering. Yeah, where would you put the, it? Yeah. Because I kind of look at, like, especially when I was taking the cross reference, where I see a note in my Bible says, "Look at this. You know, here's another passage that's similar or whatever." And I kind of look at that as like, like a, I'm reading somebody's commentary. Somebody, somebody put that in there. That's who's, who's commenting in a way, in an indirect way, that this is related to that. And I think if I when I do that, I say, "Let's stay in the passage like you're talking about," and then and then I'll go to that, or I'll go to the commentary, or I'll go to that passage. Yeah, no, that that's good. I, there's there's a sense in which numbering them and putting some things first and some things towards the end is is helpful, and then not helpful, mm-hmm. because when you're, it's not like, look, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I don't start. Um, and go, number one, clarity of scripture, and Tuesday for two hours is devoted to that. The next two hours is you know, walking through the process. These things have their tentacles into each other so much that they're, it's happening all the time. It's like you have to learn to do these things all at once. And some, and there's a, there's a sense in which you'll know, I'm not getting any further here by staying in this. I, I need to... But I know Paul has talked about this in Galatians too, and, and so, and so then you cross-reference, and, and so sometimes you'll you'll go to it second. Other times you'll cross-reference at the very end for application. When it, when you're trying to say, okay, therefore, how are we going to apply this? Let me give you an example from where Paul actually gave an application from this in another book. Um, so it's a matter of being able to use it enough where you're able to hang on to all of it the best that you can and try to implement I'll take a note, one more Tom and then just because I, yeah. I, I find it helpful for myself to remind myself that scripture presupposes I know the rest of scripture so when I am reading it I have that thought that the author would have a reason to believe I knew the rest of what the Bible said yeah and we talked about that last time with Luke 1 you read just the first 14 verses and it presupposes you know priest language temple language this that a whole bunch of things and so if you're just in your day parachuting into Luke chapter 1 and you read that and you've never given thought to that that's going to be you're going to have major obstacles in in regards to your understanding and this is why it's important to make sure that you're reading through your Bible all the time now I would love to be able to uh, talk more about this today. If you guys want to, we can hang around a little bit, those of you who want to. But I want to talk to you about H3. Smed was going to be here, but um, Janet's out of town, and so he's at home with the kids. But I want to talk to you about H3. Um, before that, I want to talk to you about Bill. You guys have had a year of 
somebody standing in front of you every other week saying, shepherd your heart. Shepherd your heart. Shepherd your heart. Shepherd your heart. Shepherd your home. Shepherd people. Think about qualifications for ministry. Deacon and elder. Aim for those things. Do not stop doing that. Because the building comes to an end. These are things that you need to be doing as a man of God every day of your life until you die or until Jesus comes back for you. Okay? So um, keep going. Don't stop. H3 does not graduate from these things and leave them in the dust. H3 continues to focus on these things. As men in the church and as men who will be leaders in the church and are leaders in the church, you need to um, exhibit this. You need to model it and you need to help others think about it when you're meeting with people. It should be on your mind, well, this sounds to me like you need, that the person I'm listening to, they need to shepherd their heart better. You need to bring that out and advance this beyond you um, to others. So I want to encourage you to do that. Um, H3, however, is meant to do something different than what we're doing here, where we talk about um, just stressing this over and over and seeing it in Scripture that you need to be concerned about your heart with the Word of God because God is concerned about your heart in His Word. Um, and in particular, that your heart meets Him in the Word. Um, H3 adds and does more things. H3 primarily moves towards theology in terms of giving you a systematic theology. Uh, we're going to touch on, in H3 subjects, um, God, the theology of God, proper theology, pneumatology, what do we know about the Holy Spirit, um, um, soteriology, salvation, what does the Bible say about salvation? And it's going to start developing those things, and it doesn't do it every other week, it does it every week. Um, and it's primarily addressing theology. Now, there's a very important reason why we have put that theological development and equipping off and done something like this first. And that is because it is a dangerous thing, in my opinion, and I think you can look throughout church history, in which you give theology to a man who's not concerned to shepherd his heart. Your theology, in the end, I'm going to say something maybe a little stretching here for you. Your theology, in the end, will not save you. Because your theology is dependent upon the condition of your heart. You can have good theology, and you're not shepherding your heart. But if you have if you have a discipline in your life of shepherding your heart, theology will be of immense value to you. Okay, And it's not one against the other. It's not one or the other. It is both and... But we want to stress, shepherd your heart first, and always, and last. And then let's develop theology from Scripture. And that's what H3 is about. H3 is also about equipping you with the kinds of things that we talked about here and more, and in particular, grammar types of things. If you're going to observe the English text, you need to know what a noun is, what a pronoun is, what a subject is, what an adjective is, what an adverb is. You need to understand phrases like, Participle phrases, gerunds. Uh, you need to understand how they relate to each other. A, a word can exist as a in, in a in a form as a noun, but it can be functioning adjectively. And you need to understand how that can happen and what that means and what that does to the text and how it improves your observation of the text and a little bit of grammar and how words relate to each other, how phrases relate to each other, how paragraphs relate to each other, how books relate to each other. And if you'll get this booklet that, I, that we just went through the first few pages on, it will take you through an introduction of all of that. 
H3 every week has a third of its time devoted to this kind of thing. Early on, the guys who are in H3 get assigned, a, 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 you get to pick a passage that you're eventually going to preach at the end. And you only get 20 minutes to do that. And you spend the whole year um, analyzing its grammar and its syntax, uh, the relationships between words and, and words and phrases and phrases. And Smed works with you. And he sits with you. And you develop it over time. You get a whole year to kind of develop it. And it's really on, the emphasis is not just theological in H3, it's that you need to be able to handle God's word well so that you can teach it in your small groups, so that you can study it yourself, so that you can, with the people that you minister with, and two, you can um, help them to understand scripture. Okay? So that's what H3 is. H3 is not an open-door thing like, hey, every guy in the church, come on in. Um, it's elder invite. The elders want to be very careful and thoughtful about where you're at in the season of life you're in, in the season of maturity that you're in, and... Um, your involvement in the church and things like that and the elders want to invite you in with that being said that doesn't mean that you don't have a say we want to hear what your thoughts are about where you think you're at if you um, have gone through a year of build and you feel like you know what I, I really man I am <coughs> hungering for this I want you to tell me I want you to send me an email that says I am very interested in H3 and the elders are sitting looking at the roster and want to have the next H3 ready to go in June. That's when Smed wants to do it. There are so many guys in here, and Smed wants to keep it um, at a small size, like a dozen, that most likely he's going to do two classes. So it's going to be offered at two different times. Um, same thing both times. Okay, Just different guys in it. Um, if we have that many who are able to. So some of you may not be able to do it in June. Because the time just doesn't work. Either time doesn't work for you. And that's okay. We're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep going through it. Some of you may um, want to do build again next year because you, you jump <coughs> late. And we'll talk about that as well. But I want to hear from you guys if you really want to do H3. Um, don't just assume that, well, the guys are just, the elders are just going to pick who they want. <coughs> well, that's not it at all. Okay? We want to hear from you. But it's, 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 a, it's an important part of our leadership development, which the elders want to have a say on it and, um, and and want that to be a necessary next part for leadership in the church, okay? Do you guys have any questions about H3 or any of this? Anything beyond that? <coughs> Josh? Do you guys know um, when H3 is What times? Yeah, same format now or when it's that um, my guess is there will be, um, if there are two different times it meets, there will, at a minimum, be one of them will be an early morning during the week. Like right now, it meets on Tuesday mornings at 6, to, from 6 to 7.30 in the smaller conference room over there. Oh, no, the large conference room over there. Um, and so my guess is there will be an, an early morning time like that on one of them. Um, and, but, you know, depending on... SMED sets the time based on what the guys who are interested in or who are going to be in it, what they're able to do. We don't set the time first and say, conform. We want to get a feel for where you're all at, who are going to be in it, and say, when is your availability? Does a time like this work for you? Oh, it doesn't for six of you? Well, we're not going to do that time. Um, but that doesn't mean we're going to be able to find times where every single guy can do it. Um, so... We'll do the best we can. I don't know. Another time might be an evening. It might be a Saturday. I don't know. It'll just kind of depend on what Smed and the guys who are in it 
what works for them. What other questions do you have? What does page three stand for? Heart, head, and hands. Um, you continue to shepherd your heart. We want to feed the heart. We want to grow in our knowledge, um, which would be the head side. And that's not to say that there's no knowledge in the heart or that if you're in your head, you don't have any heart or anything like that. Um, but we want to grow in our knowledge of who God is and um, in the theology and hands. You've got to put your hands to this, and it has to flesh itself out in terms of how you handle God's word and how you minister to people. And so you'll find that each, each meeting is divided into those three categories. Smed so will take the first part, and he'll talk about your heart in regards to scripture and, and God and, and just where you're at as a man of God. Are you taking care of your heart? He'll challenge you to that end, and then you'll spend a third of your time on um, growing in your understanding of theology, and then you spend the last part of your time working on your messages. You're putting your hands to the text and ministry issues. Okay? Great question. Other questions? Yes, David. What are the qualifications that we're receiving the H3 um, At a minimum, a year of build and um, demonstrating that you're, 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 you're getting what build's about. That's a, a, a base minimum. Um, and beyond that, um, desire. Is that something that you really, we're not going to take a guy who's building, I don't really want to do it. No, you got to do it. The elder said you have to. No, I don't, you know, we're not going to do that. Um, desire is huge. Um, and things like that. I mean, we, <coughs> we want as many guys in the church to be able to go through it. But it needs to be the right time in a guy's life, too. Okay. Yes. In light of who asked that question, I'd say at this point there's not an extension campus in San Francisco. Yeah. Sorry, David. <laughs> or if you want me to talk to your boss and, and see if I can get you fired, I'd be more than happy to do that. <laughs> what other questions do you have? It's a great question. Yes. When will the roster be determined? Very shortly. Um, I know that SMED will want to work on that. So if you guys can let me know sooner than later, just send me an email, scott at gracetempe.org. Send me an email or come talk to me, uh, but don't walk away without me having written down your name because I want to make sure that I, I get a list of who's really interested in that, okay? Scott, yes. if, if, if it's possible, if you could do it between now and Sunday night when we have an elder meeting. Oh, that'd be great. We could have some healthy discussion this week, and that would really be helpful. Yeah, that would be helpful for Smith. So if you can let me know by Sunday. Eric, Bill will start up again in June? Uh, no, Bill will not start up in June. Bill will start up. Bill goes from, like, uh, September or October till this time, April or May. It kind of depends on when we start it. And we're going to we'll start that up soon. I don't. Then, okay? So it goes from June to what? It'll go, like, uh, it'll, it goes 12, basically about 10, 11 months. Okay. They're finishing up. May 12th, and they started in June, late June. So it goes about 11 months every week, except for at Christmas there was a, you know, a week off or when Smed had diseases and was sick and they didn't meet, um, things like that. What other questions do you have? Are you going to stick around after you dismiss Yeah, I'll be here. My kids are being dropped off, and they'll be running around here somewhere, but I will stay um, as long as you guys have questions. Okay. Let me pray, and then if you guys want questions, you can talk to more, we can do that. Okay? Thanks, guys. Hey, guys, just listen before we pray. Thank you so much for being a part of this. It, this, was, this is going to stand out for me as one of my favorite years. The first year was pretty special. Um, 
this year is very special too. Um, and you guys have just stuck with it. And there's a group like this, this size. Uh, there's just a lot of excitement. Smed is very excited that we have this many guys in build who would then potentially go on. So thank you for being faithful. Thank you for having such good interaction and all of that. Okay? Let's thank God. Heavenly Father, we do thank you because this is what you have done in these guys' lives. And um, you are forming your son in them, and it is evident. And thank you for bringing this men, these men to... Um, Grace Bible Church, thank you for, um, well, I thank you for bringing Smed to this church who could help develop the next phase of leadership development that we need desperately in this church and um, that wasn't happening prior to his arrival. Thank you just for adding another shepherd to this church who was able to help this come to pass. And uh, Lord, we just pray for wisdom for these guys, that you would help them to sift through their own desires well and um, so that they can make a good decision about H3 and I just thank you for how you have grown me through their uh, questions and interactions and their thoughtfulness and um, their humility Lord it's just a, a blessing to be a shepherd in this body and over men like this and with men like this so God thank you uh, for our time together we love you and we pray in Jesus name Amen alright guys thanks hang on if you want yes I know it's good yeah, there's more homework in H3 than there is in Build. And it's every week. There's reading to do, and there's stuff to prepare for your, your passage. So um, it's not insurmountable, but it's more than what you got here. Much more. Uh, more. Okay? Okay.